Pray with me. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would faithfully meet with us, that you would speak to us, although we are sinful people, that you would speak through me, although I am a sinful person, and that you would give us the hope of your love and conform us more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When you look at the world, how do you feel? Do you feel afraid? Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel timid or insecure or alarmed or disturbed? I talk to a lot of believers and they express those feelings to me. They express them maybe especially right now in this moment as we face realities like the coronavirus and the potential economic challenges that it creates. But, but that's not really a new feeling. I feel like this is how many Christians that I talk to feel most of the time. They feel that fear. And the thing is, that is a problem. It's not a problem in the sense that you should just get over it, but it is a real problem in the sense that Scripture calls us not to live in those places of fear and despair. Scripture tells us to be hopeful, to be joyous, but recognizing that is not the same thing as understanding how to get there and how to stop feeling those things. I mean, like, I, I have kids, and when they come out of their beds and they're like, Daddy, I'm afraid, I can't sleep, it does not work to just say, fear is a sin, go back to bed, and then have them just go do it. So we need a way to address those fears. Why do we feel afraid about the world? I think at root, it's because we feel like the world represents this force of darkness and evil that is unstoppable and infectious. It is unstoppable in the sense that no matter what we try to do, nothing ever changes and things are always terrible and there's nothing we can do about it. And infectious in the sense that we feel like it's constantly trying to, to get its claws into us and corrupt us and that if we, if we expose ourselves to it, that despite our best intentions, somehow we're going to be co-opted by the world or the people around us are going to be. In a sense, I think we almost feel about the world sometimes as Christians the way a lot of people feel about the coronavirus right now. Like, it's this big scary thing out there, and we can't see it, we can't really get our heads around it, and it could infect us at any moment, and, and it could destroy us, and there's this real fear that affects us in that world. These stories from the Gospel of Luke, I think, are meant to give us a different narrative about the world a different narrative about the world that we live in. And so here's the plan. I want to take, just, just file away, we just talked about that fear that we feel, remember that, but I want to just walk through these two stories and see what's going on in them and then come back to that question of how we feel about the world and what we can do about that. First, let's look at the text. Pick up in Luke 5, 12 with me. It says that while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So first of all, leprosy, when we read about it in scripture, it includes the disease we would technically call leprosy today and several other skin diseases. But the thing to understand about all of those diseases is that they were terrible and that they were incurable. 
that they inflicted a great deal of suffering on the people that had them, and that there wasn't a known way to simply cure those diseases. And so in all of the ancient world, what you saw was really this strategy of quarantine in order to deal with those diseases. You would have people live kind of in a separate community and not have contact with people that were not sick for fear that the disease would spread. Within the Old Testament Jewish law, that kind of approach is tied up in these laws about cleanness and uncleanness. And so in that law, when you got leprosy, one of these diseases, what would happen is that you were then considered ceremonially unclean, which meant that you could not be a part of normal society and had to live separate from it. And importantly, that that uncleanness could then be transmitted through touch to other people. So if someone came in physical contact with someone who had leprosy, then they had to, at least for a period of time, live in um, in isolation and separation as well until it could be clear whether they had leprosy and then they could go through this process of purification. But that meant for people with leprosy that not only did they have this terrible disease, but that they had to live these isolated lives apart from normal society and that they probably hadn't, at least as adults, ever even felt another human being's touch. Take all of that and look at how Jesus responds. Jesus stretched out his hand to this man and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, two things about that. One, big picture, whenever we encounter these healings of Jesus, it is true that part of what we're supposed to learn from that is just that God is sovereign and powerful even over disease. And, and you do see that, right? Jesus does not, he doesn't like hem and haw, he doesn't like give him some prescription of procedures to follow and maybe he'll get better in a month or two. He doesn't, he doesn't even like pray to the Father and say, you know, if it's your will, he just says, I will be clean. Which is meant to speak to us of Jesus's power and authority. But notice the way that he does it because that's what's so important. What happens is it says Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches this man with leprosy and the leprosy leaves him. Remember, in the Mosaic Law, it was uncleanness that spreads through touch. If you are ceremonially clean and you touch something that is ceremonially unclean, then you become unclean. Even in the modern world with disease, that makes sense to us, right? We, we have this sense that disease is the thing that spreads. And so if someone is sick and you come into contact with them, then you can get sick. But for Jesus, what he does is he is clean and he touches this man who is ceremonially unclean and that man is actually made clean through the touch. Which means that the order of things is actually running in reverse. That it is actually the cleanness, the, the life that is spreading. The cleanness spreads in Jesus' ministry, not the uncleanness. You can see that same kind of idea, I think, in the next few verses. It says that Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and to make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he's examined by the priests. Priests kind of functioned almost as the health inspectors for these sorts of things in the ancient world. If someone with leprosy claimed to have been healed, the priest would examine them and make sure that was actually the case. But we also might wonder then, why does Jesus tell him not to tell anyone? That happened back in Luke 4 as well, with the man possessed by a demon. And probably what's going on 
in the Gospel of Luke, you see this theme in the other Gospels too, is that Jesus is, he understands the reality that the world that he lives in, what most people want is for him to be this political savior and wage this kind of war of rebellion against Rome and overthrow Caesar and take up this political kingdom on earth. And Jesus is not doing that. And so in the Gospels, he tells people not to go share these reports about him to make clear that that's not the case and to distance himself from those people that might maybe even by force try to make him that kind of Messiah. But notice what happens. Jesus tells him not to tell anyone, but it says, but now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Jesus has a terrible PR strategy, first of all. He, he does the opposite of like everything you would advise people to do whenever he does these miracles like this one. He, he hides it away and he tells the person not to tell anyone else. And then when the crowds start to gather, he runs off into the wilderness. But despite that, the gospel spreads. The good news of Jesus also spreads and, and, and people are drawn in and begin to glorify him. So that's our first story. We see this cleanness and the gospel spreading outward in the reverse of what we would expect in the world. But before we apply that, let's look at the second story. Pick up in verse 18. It says, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, this is a memorable scene, and maybe you've heard it before in church, but you can just picture, right? You're, these people are crammed into this house, packed in tight, standing room only, probably overflowing out the front door. And, and then this shaft of sunlight comes down from up above, and people look up, and maybe there's some tiles falling down on their faces, and then they see this shadow in the, the middle of the hole of sunlight as it's lowered in, and you see this man who is unable to walk lowered down on this mat, and people are like pushing back to make room as this man descends and lands at Jesus' feet. Keep reading. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus recognizes the faith of these friends and of this man, but what he says is your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus say that? Well, in Jesus' world, there is this idea that tries to link particular people's sins with particular diseases, that, that if you're sick, it must, it must be your fault that you did something wrong, or maybe like your parents' fault, but they draw, try to, to draw this really tight circle around that and say that somehow you can directly connect this disease or hard thing happening and this wrong thing you did. There are some preachers in our world that talk that way too, but Jesus is very much against that way of thinking, and repeatedly in the Gospels, he challenges that. But there is another sense in which Jesus would agree that there is a big circle around sin as a whole in our world that connects that with the brokenness of our world, including disease. That, um, that all of our world is broken as a result of human sin. When we rebelled against God, even though he had put us in this very good world and we lived at peace, it was like this bomb blast that went off in creation. And the beauty of the world in many ways has been reduced to rubble. And there's, there's this like radiation that's seeping out from, from where the bomb detonated and poisoning everything. That human sin 
in that sense, human rebellion against God created all of the brokenness and sickness and affliction of our world. And Jesus is pointing out that reality as he confronts this man's sin. That when we're talking about this man who was paralyzed and not able to walk, that that is connected to the big picture, big circle brokenness of our world. So Jesus says his sins are forgiven, and in verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now we should say that's a fair question, right? That, that if I go around, you know, and if like someone does something mean to you and I walk up and say, you're forgiven, you might be like, wait a minute, you don't really have the right to do that. That's sort of what the Pharisees are getting at. But, but of course, the point Jesus is making here, in a sense, is that when they say, who can forgive sins but God alone, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, yeah, about that. That it is, in fact, a mark of his divine power and office that is the grounds for his authority to heal and to forgive sins. But he, knowing their question, here's what Jesus says. It says, Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier? to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? Now that's actually a tricky question, actually, <laughs> theologically, but, but just bear with me. He, he says this, and then keep reading. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So Jesus is claiming the authority to forgive sins, and the, the way that he demonstrates that is by healing this man's disease. Let me try to explain the connection between those things. In Scripture, we are all guilty. We are all guilty of the brokenness of this world. The Bible at times uses this almost courtroom language to picture what's happening, where sin and Satan and the dark forces that destroy the world, they appear in that court and they point at us and they say, we own him. We have rights to him. We get to destroy him because he has partnered with us in sin. And Jesus says no to that. He declares forgiveness. But then to do that, what he does is he demonstrates his power to forgive by demonstrating his power over the curse of sin. That, that if this brokenness that this man has experienced, it is a result of the curse that we are all under, then Jesus says, I will show you that I have power even over sin itself, and I will show that by showing my ability to break that curse. The ultimate expression of that is in Jesus's cross and resurrection. The way that Jesus can ultimately say that our sins are forgiven is by himself suffering under their guilt, suffering the destruction that we have sown in the world and that we should reap. Jesus suffers under that for our forgiveness. And then just like this man, he stands up on the third day, triumphing over death and demonstrating that the curse has been undone. So that is an earth-shattering claim to say, I have the authority to forgive sins and I will demonstrate that by showing my authority to break the curse. And as we see at the end of this passage, people understand how amazing this claim is. It says, amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. 
Their whole view of the world has changed, and now they are rejoicing and glorifying God because of what they've seen in Jesus. So those are the stories. How do we then apply that to the way we engage with the world? Before I give you the answer, I want to give you an image that I just have in my head. And the image is this. When I was a kid, we used to have the old Disney Beauty and the Beast movie. And I really liked that movie. I think then mostly I liked the song with all the candlesticks dancing and the battle at the end. But I also remember, even as a child, and again as an adult when I watched it with my kids, also being really moved by the ending. Right there they are. The, the beast is lying, he's dying, and um, Belle is, is crying on him, holding him, and they've both learned to love each other, and you see the last petal of the rose starting to, to fall off and drop down, and everything is dark and grim, and then there's this, this trail, this flash of light, and another flash, and suddenly you see the beast start to lift up, and the curse is being undone on him, and he's being restored back to the man that he was meant to be. And all around you see his servants, right? Like the candlestick turns into this the skinny guy with the suit, and the, the teacup turns into a little boy, and the futon turns into a dog, and a grim, dark castle is suddenly turned back to this white, beautiful place, and the trees that were all dead are brimming with, with fruit and with leaves you see this spread outward of restoration as the curse is undone. That is what Jesus is doing in the world. This is the point of these stories and the thing we need to understand, that because of Jesus, the curse is running in reverse and life is infecting death. Because of Jesus, the curse is running in reverse and life is infecting death. We are, as human beings, born into sin. It is in our DNA. Even in the womb, we are corrupted by it. Some of us are broken in different ways by it. And as we come out into the world, we are then influenced and shaped by sin. It's like this radiation that, that, that mutates us as we live in it, that that we are wounded by others and, and we are hardened and we are broken in different ways there and we participate in sin. That's why we can't say that it's not our fault, that we are just as active in the wounding and in the breaking as in receiving those things, that every one of us partners with our parents in our rebellion against God. And because of all of that, the curse spreads, that all of human history is, is the story of, of the curse affecting every aspect of God's very good world. All of that is a story until Jesus. And what Jesus does is he comes into that and he looks at this world where the curse spreads and he says, be blessed, and he touches people and the blessing starts to spread out of him and into the world instead. That, that what happens when Jesus dies is that life suddenly infects that death and breaks out of it, and he rises again. <laughs> that for Jesus, the curse is running in reverse. And that because of his work, that is the story that is starting to happen in our lives and in the world as well. Let me just try to sound the same kind of theme from a couple of different places. John chapter 16, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's talking with his disciples because they're very soon going to face hardship and struggle. Pick up in verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. 
Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So Jesus is setting up, he's saying, you're going to be scattered <laughs> very soon. Um, and, and when you think about me, the reason I have hope is because the Father is with me. But then he says this to them in verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, first of all, well, it's not the point. Let me just say that in the world you will have tribulation. That is a blanket statement by Jesus. And it's the sort of realism that I think sometimes some Christians need. Like I remember when I was a kid, my mom had this book of Bible promises for your life. And I remember I would flip through it and it just had scripture verses with different promises. And this verse was not in there. But that is actually a promise of God, that in this world we will face struggle and suffering and tribulation. So that's true. But notice the reason we have hope, it's because Jesus has overcome the world. That Jesus has defeated the power of this world. That even though we might struggle and have suffering in this world, that Jesus has been victorious, past tense over it, and he will ultimately bring that victory to completion. The curse is running in reverse. Or one more example of that. Peter, the disciple, in Matthew 16. Peter finally comes to this point where he recognizes who Jesus is, and he says that you are um, the Messiah, you are the Son of God, and Jesus then says this to him, talking about that confession that Peter has made. In Matthew 16, he says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think I talked about this once before in a sermon. But I think about that verse sometimes because I'd heard it before growing up and somehow I think the way I always heard it was this sense that this is what it was saying. It was saying, you know, the church is built on a rock and so even though you're going to be under attack all the time, even though you're going to be like beaten down all the time by the world, even though the world is going to be attacking you, that, that you're going to survive. You'll make it through somehow. There's one problem with that reading of the text. Gates don't attack. When it talks about the gates of hell, right? Like, that's not an image of an army marching out to attack the church. Gates are a defensive tool, right? The, the gates are the thing that you bar in the city wall to keep the enemy army from marching in. And so what Jesus is saying is not that you're going to be under attack, but somehow you'll make it through, through. He's saying the church is supposed to be on the offensive. He's saying the church is supposed to move out into the world with its good news of peace and life and hope in Jesus Christ, and that the gates of hell themselves will not be able to stand against the church's onslaught, that we will batter them down and break through them. That's why Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, all of which is the language of authority and power. And Jesus is saying, this is the power that we have in him, that we are the ones with authority in this world because we belong to Jesus Christ, who is its victorious king. Because of Jesus, the curse is running in reverse, Life is infecting death. Jesus has overcome the world, and the gates of hell themselves will not stand against our assault. Here is the question I want you to then ask yourself. How would the way you feel about the world and the way you live in the world be different if you believed that was true? 
How much would the way we feel about the world and the way that we live in the world change if we believed that that was true? I mean that, just think about that for a minute. Just sit with that. That, that the curse is running in reverse. Life is the thing that infects death. That Jesus has overcome the world. That the gates of hell will not stand against our onslaught. How would it change how you lived if you believed that was true? The reason I think we really need to just sit with those questions is because I think many of us as Christians have been lied to. We've been lied to by the church. We've been lied to by pastors. We've been lied to by public Christian figures. And this is the lie. The lie has been that we should be afraid. Now, look, when I say that, it was a well-intentioned lie. They, it, I don't think people set out to deceive us. I think it's a trap that any of us who are leading God's people can fall into. But we see real struggle in the world, and we want to motivate people. And the way we motivate them is through fear. Because in the short term, fear is a great motivator. If the question is, how can I get somebody to take a certain action or send in a check to my ministry or vote a certain way in this election, fear is a really good way to motivate those sorts of specific actions. But over time, fear actually robs us of our sense of power. Fear actually warps the way that we live in the world and removes the strength that Jesus gives us. Let me show you that in 2 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, for God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see the contrast there? It's between fear and power. Being afraid actually robs us of it. The problem with viewing the world as an unstoppable, infectious disease, like we said many of us do at the beginning, the problem with viewing the world that way is that it actually strips us of our ability to change it because we withdraw from it. If the world is this unstoppable place that will just infect and corrupt us with sin, then, you know, lock your doors and hide your children and get in your ghettos and hunker down until the rapture and just try to survive. But the problem is that in Scripture, we are the unstoppable ones. We are the infectious ones, in a sense, with, with the love and good news of Jesus Christ that is meant to spread out to the world. And because of our fear and because of the way that we hide away and do not engage in that calling, we're actually robbed of that power and not given the chance to exercise it. We got a, a dog recently, Charlie. Um, the kids have wanted one for years and we finally gave in. And Charlie is like a medium-sized dog that probably has some big dog DNA. He's a mutt, but, um, but you know, he's decently sized and he has this overlarge head and this like insane bite strength. But but you know, I, I was taking him for a walk a couple weeks ago, right? And we encounter this guy with this tiny little dog that's like a fifth the size of Charlie. But this dog is real aggressive and comes and starts barking at him. And Charlie like whimpers and, you know, pulls back by my legs, afraid of this dog. And objectively, that's crazy, right? Because he could just bite this little dog in half if he wanted to. But the thing is that, um, that he does not realize that he has that power. And in some ways, that's intentional for dogs. I mean, if you've ever owned a legitimately big dog, you probably have had the realization at some point that 
this animal could kill you. <laughs> and so it's important to, to, to make clear to it what the boundaries of its power are, to domesticate it. But while that makes sense for dogs, it is tragic when it happens to the church. And too often, I think that is what has happened. That we are so convinced that we are powerless, we are so afraid of the world around us, that it keeps us from using the strength that we actually have. Let me try to just give you one example of that. Think about evangelism, our call to share the good news of Jesus with the people around us and to invite them to enter into the life that he offers them. A lot of us struggle with evangelism. Up front, I should say this before I say what I'm about to say, it is true when we think about sharing the good news of Jesus with people that, one, the outcome is always in God's hand. It is God that calls and draws and regenerates and gives new life, right? I don't get to, I can't force somebody in to the kingdom. And it's also true that people are in process and they have to take their own journey. And so I need to honor that fact as I engage with them. But that said, we feel afraid to share the gospel. And so we often don't. Why is that? Well, again, before I give the answer I really want to get to, some of that is probably just the sin of selfishness when I think about my own heart. I want to look cool and be liked by people. And when you tell people that we are all hellbound sinners without hope except for the work of Jesus Christ giving us life that we do not deserve, that they don't usually think that you're a really cool person when you share that with them. And that part of it is just sin. And we need to repent of that because that's caring more about ourselves and our comfort and how people perceive us than we actually care about them. But I think the bigger answer for why we struggle to share Jesus' love and the good news of the gospel with people is this. We feel like they will ask us questions that we don't know the answers to. We feel like nobody is ever really going to believe what we're saying. We feel like sin is just too strong and people are too set in their ways and the gospel doesn't really have the strength to change human hearts. I think it is those beliefs that often paralyze us, and keep us from moving out. Do you realize, though, when you operate out of those beliefs, how relieved the devil is? The gospel has power. We are God's ambassadors, and Satan lives in absolute terror of the day that we start acting like that is true. Because he knows that the gospel can change hearts and lives, and that there is nothing that he can do to stop it. The devil's greatest hope is that we will be too afraid not to take up and wield the power that God has given us. Because if we do, he can't stand against it. But as long as he can convince us that the world is this scary place, and that it cannot be stopped, and that it will infect us, as long as he keeps us in fear, then his dominion is safe. The gospel is good and powerful news. You'll discover as you start to share it with people that you don't have to know all the answers and that God will give you enough words to share your heart. You'll discover that many people are hungry and really long to meet Jesus, maybe not instantaneously, but as you walk with them through life. And you'll discover that God is at work in and through you. What we are called to in that and in every other part of our mission as Christians, is to have fearless hope. Fearless hope as we share the gospel, 
fearless hope as we go love people, right? I mean, I, I, I hear these people sometimes that will say like, well, if you go like help the poor, maybe they'll take advantage of you or rob you or something. You know, you, you could get a disease touching those people with leprosy and our fearless hope should be our response to all of that. Fearless hope should be our response to the narratives of fear that we're given about the world, the kind of hope that says Jesus is at work, that the kingdom is on the move, and it cannot be stopped. And you know what? When I encounter the darkness, it is the light of Christ that I have that's actually going to pierce that darkness and drive it back. Fearless hope. All of which is to say this, coming back to the original question we asked way back at the beginning. When you look at the world, how do you feel? Do you feel fear? Do you feel discouragement? Do you feel timid and insecure and alarmed and disturbed? Or do you feel hopeful? Here is what makes the difference. What makes the difference is not how we look at the world. That's the problem with just saying stop it. When you look around at the world, absolutely, there's scary and dark and hard things out there, and just trying to pretend like there isn't won't get you anywhere. But the answer is that instead of looking at the world, what we are called to do is to look at Jesus. Jesus who touches unclean things and the cleanness flows out of him into them. Jesus who faces the curse of sin and with a word says it is undone. Jesus who pays for the guilt of our sin and gives us his righteousness. Jesus who has overcome the world. Jesus who promises that the the, the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the good news of his kingdom. Look at Jesus and at his victory and let that shape the way that you move through the world. Fix your eyes on Jesus and then walk forward courageously with fearless hope, secure in his strength hopeful in his mission, knowing that we come into the world in his name and that his purposes will be accomplished. Make that your hope. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, I acknowledge that we are often a timid people, that I am often a person who lets fear Hold me back from pursuing and working for your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that you would forgive us for this, our sin, and that you would affirm to us the great victory that you have won and that you are winning and that you will finally bring to completion at your return. Give us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control as your people. Send us forth as ambassadors and missionaries into the world, showing your love to others, speaking peace, giving the joy that rests in knowing you to those who are desperate for us. Lord, work through us and work in us that our hope might be ever fixed on you. You, Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world to move towards us as God, who lived the perfect life that none of us has ever lived, who suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins and to swallow up the curse of sin, who rose again on the third day to break its power and declare victory and put the powers of darkness in this world to open shame, and who now reigns from the Father's right hand and who will return to make all things new. Lord Jesus, that is who you are. Let us walk in that hope. Pray this in your sweet name. Amen.
And now, friends, join me in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. 